1: Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to The Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, this is Goodwin a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, I have a comedian come on to play a clip of one of their bits and then discuss how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is David Wayne, who you may know best for co-writing and directing Wet Hot American Summer. That movie and the cult that eventually formed around it has allowed David to pursue a career of single-minded silliness, from films like Role Models, Wanderlust, and They Came Together, to TV projects like The Wet Hot Sequels, Children's Hospital, and his recent Netflix spin-off, The Procedural Parody, Medical Police. To understand David's career in film and television, as we talk about in this episode, you have to start with the state. The comedy troupe he and a bunch of friends started at NYU in the late 1980s. In addition to David, many of the group's members went on to make quite a name for themselves in comedy, including in all of David's projects, um, be it Michael Showalter, Michael Ian Black, Ken Marino, Joe Latrulio, Carrie Kenny, or Thomas Lennon. After college, they somehow convinced MTV to give them a sketch show, also called The State. It was very much a DIY production. David and the other 10 members of the state wrote, acted, directed, and edited the entire show. The group was highly motivated and quixotically ambitious, hoping to change comedy forever. As a result, relationships would sometimes get contentious. Early on in the group's history, David punched Ken Marino in the back of the head, for example. The series didn't last long, only 26 episodes over four seasons between 1992 and 1995. And though some older critics at the time never understood the state's version of highbrow lowbrow, it's now considered one of the most influential sketch shows of all time. The sketch Dave and I talked about this episode is called Taco Man. I love this sketch. I think it's one of the great sketches. I know that sounds lofty, especially so once you hear how silly and small this thing is, but that's what I love about it. There's a childlike innocence in this sketch that you often see in David's work that remains relevant to this day, especially now. Beyond being perfectly structured, it it captures the essence of riffing and just doing the first dumb idea that comes into your head. David calls it one of his favorite state sketches, and I know people that even teach it in sketch writing classes. We're going to play the sketch now. To set it up for listeners, Kevin Allison plays Jake the Mailman, and Michael Ian Black plays the guy who wants to know what's happened to his mail. David makes a cameo appearance at the end as Michael's wife. Thomas Lennon plays a neighbor who passes by. Also, there are two key visual jokes in it, so if you can watch the sketch right now, I suggest it. I'll give you a second. Okay, I'm back. So if not, I'll just tell you what happens at the end when the mailman leaves, he just vanishes. And then you'll hear Michael and David saying bye to someone. It's their mailbox walking away. I know. Brilliant stuff. So here is Taco Man, followed by my interview with David Wayne, which we recorded in Los Angeles in January of this year.
3: Hi there. Howdy. You're our mailman, right? Yes, sir. So you're the one who's been delivering tacos to us every day. How you like them? Oh, yeah. I love them. They're really, really great tacos. But <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, Jake. Jake. I'll tell you, Jake. The wife and I noticed that uh, since the tacos started coming, the mail doesn't so much come as often or at
4: all. Jake, what I'm getting at is, where's our mail? Yeah, you want to know about the mail. Here's the mail situation. I can't fit both the mail and the tacos in the bag. It's hard enough fitting the tacos. I'll level with you. These bags weren't designed for tacos. That's kind of what I'm getting at, Jake. Well, don't tell me you're having a problem with the tacos, huh? Jake.
3: I love the tacos. Okay. They're maybe the best tacos I've ever had. It's just that, well, I think if I had to choose between the tacos and the mail, I'd have to choose the mail.
4: Okay, uh, I'm going to take a breath here. I'm afraid you might be saying something you don't quite mean. What I'm hearing is you don't want the tacos.
3: Great tacos today, Jake. Jake, you have to bring the mail. If we want tacos, we can always go to Taco Shack. You're not going to eat that crap, are you? Jake, if I miss my mail, I don't pay my bills, and I
4: could lose my house. Oh, so your concern is the importance of getting your mail? Yes! Well Bills and stuff? Yes, yes, yes! Oh, you know, you're right. I'm sorry. I just don't have the same passion for delivering mail as I do for making and distributing tacos. You know, I I quit. I don't know what I'm gonna do.
3: Wait, Jake. You could probably get a job selling tacos to customers on a voluntary
4: basis. Listen, I just died inside and I don't really feel like talking.
5: So is he gonna start delivering our mail now?
3: I don't know, sweetheart. But I do know this. That was the longest conversation I've ever had. Goodbye, mailbox.
4: Bye-bye.
2: We hear David Wayne. The Hello. Part of the uh, This is David Monday. Wayne. What was it like watching that? What was the last time you watched it? I tried to show the
5: state to my children, who are 9 and 12, um, in the last few years, and they kind of liked it a lot, actually. Yeah. I, I was shocked, actually, that kids... Their age really into the state, and also the Stella show we did on mm-hmm. Comedy Central is like a kid's running around adventure. And, yeah, the, yeah. and I could, uh, it, it probably would make sense if you took those exact scripts and made a cartoon show yeah, yeah. today, people wouldn't blink an eye. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know when I actually watched that one all the way through, and I was loving it. it, it there, <laughs> there's a lot going on. It's weird. It's a little two page thing that there's just of all of the sketches we did on that show, the state that one keeps coming to mind though, is one of my favorites and I, people talk about it to me a lot. Um, And you know, it's the tiniest little thing. In fact, we, we had a thing on the state when we were doing that show called second unit where if a sketch was not a super priority for us to do, but anybody, one person wanted to try it, we would just take the camera out Um, ourselves and I remember very clearly that day we were shooting a bigger sketch and I think it was called Sal and Frankie Mm -hmm. Um, and we had a film camera and our crew and Michael Jan was directing it and me and Kevin and Michael Ian Black just took the camera, a camera and me on the shoulder and we just found some random street and just did that ourselves. There was literally nobody else there. Um, well, I, mean, it's, I mean, it's incredible yeah. if you watch it, how <laughs> the insane production value we uh, achieved. <laughs>
2: yeah, with, with just that small crew. The the state had such a specific process, especially considering how many there was of you, of how sketches that did demand more production value got through and, you know, Talkman, I think, is by third season. So sort of just as a baseline, what is the what was the traditional method in which state sketches were sort of pitched and then
5: well, the truth is that even that one went through the, the process, oh, okay. the, the, which was, well, to some degree. We had a daily pitch meeting. This is a process that evolved because we had been doing this work together as a college club uh, for a few years before we got on MTV, but a surprisingly, in retrospect, small number of years before we had mm-hmm. our own TV show. But we, um, it was a very democratic, very staunchly everyone is equal voiced system we had. And so it, it was a lot of time talking and arguing to get consensus on everything. Um, but we sat around every day at 10 and everybody read things that they wrote and we criticized them. And a lot of times the consensus was no, or to come back if you want, you know, and you could always bring it back Mm -hmm. with a revision if you wanted to keep pushing it. Um, and we would, we learned the game that quantity is important. And so that we would put a hundred sketches before the, through the process yeah. and then pick the best 10, you know, and then from those, we would submit to the network or to producers. And then we would still whittle it down and shoot a smaller number of those. And then of those, we would, uh, the ones we shot, we still only put about three quarters of them into the show.
2: So you said this went through to the traditional process, so it was pitched and then deprioritized. Do you remember sort of how yeah it, it was started?
5: Well, I remember writing it very well because we were shooting a, another sketch mm-hmm. called uh, Lincoln Logs, I think, and we were sitting in some house, and I th- I know that it was 1991 or something, and so we had very you know, rudimentary old old Macintosh uh, mm-hmm. laptops, but. Um, I think me and Kevin and Mike Black were just sitting around um, on the porch of this location board, and we just started typing. And some of some sketches came out sort of like this one did, where we just started typing lines and till it was done. And <laughs> pretty much that's what it was, you know. Yeah. And I think what struck me about watching it now is there's a certain stripe of things that I've done over all these decades that have a have that quality where one line flows into the next in some logical way but the whole has makes no sense at all yeah and and I was really tickled by that and so yeah each line it's it's like a bad improv or something like each each line is just responding to only the line before
2: yeah I was I was thinking that to jump sort of more in the future. And unlike a lot of your peers, your films have a lot less improv necessarily than like, say yeah. Judd Apatow. Um, but a lot of times your are the writing feels like improv. It's like you improv- improvise in the past. Like right. you st- what is the element that you feel like you're able to in writing capture that you feel like you don't need the improv for?
5: Well, I'm not saying I don't need improv. No. I just think it's a, yeah, it's a different, different version of the process. But, um, I think it's always been, I always think about the idea of sitting around a table with your friends and making some stupid random joke and laughing and my take being like, yeah, but let's actually do that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and having to me, a lot of the trick is to take away your judgment or your inhibitions Mm -hmm. and be like that random thing that you just thought and laughed at and moved on from don't move on from it Mm -hmm. um and so i like yeah i like when things feel whimsical or or you know out there and a lot of my favorite things that i've written have been written with a friend whether it's Mm -hmm. ken reno or uh, michael showalter or now 80 miles or other people where you're just saying something to make the other person laugh and then when the first instinct is, all right, now let's get back to our writing, you're like, well, actually.
2: This is the writing.
5: <laughs> this is the writing, yeah.
2: Do you remember how the original idea of, like, the base, what the basic was there's a Ma- Mel who delivers tacos? Or do you know how you got into just the basic premise of it?
5: You know, that there's, there's a thing called automatic writing. Yeah. I think we often do that with typing where we'll just literally start typing and see what, yeah. what it got typed. <laughs>
2: it's like a guy a mailman delivers tacos yeah. and it's like well b- based on this fact what is the next thing well some
5: happens? of my favorite jokes that i like a lot of times for example all the way coming to medical police right now i remember being in the writers room of medical police and i'm working as an ep like going through a script with the the writers mm-hmm. i'm the one on the keyboard but we're all looking at the screen and we're all revising or talking through a script and we did th- we do these ep passes on with Children's Hospital and other things too. And sometimes I'll just be writing down what everyone's pitching, but then I'll add on a new joke just typing-wise mm-hmm. basically to entertain the room. Yeah, yeah, But then sometimes those become the best jokes in the yeah. show or my favorite jokes in the show. So. But then to talk towards improv, what I like, though, is, I mean, Wet Hot American Summer has a lot of, everything Has that I've done has uh, elements of that. But then to have the chance to let see if that weird random joke does stand the test of draft after draft after draft and going through the whole process of post-production and everything. So that's why to 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 be able to do both so that by the time you get to set, you've actually honed that joke. It's been in a table read or you've read it over and over and you're still laughing at it. Then you're OK. Keep keep it yeah. going.
2: Um, so I want to walk through some of the beats of the sketch. I think. I. Um, there's an article where Jake Folkness talked about how we teach this guest, partly because it opens so strong, which is a man delivers tacos. So you're like, here's right. the premise.
5: That's not what it's supposed to be.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh, this world's different.
5: Right. Well, Jim Sharp uh, was our producer when we did The State, and he was this very um, straightforward guy who we loved from Seattle. And he was just like, there's just got to be more jokes. lot Put more jokes on the page. Start with a joke. And so, you know, I think my guess is we were saying there's a mailman and then he puts a taco in the mail.
2: <laughs> <Yes. laughs> and then the person comes and confronts them. And the first thing that you laughed at watching, which was like, I'll tell you what's your name, Jake. And then he goes like that sort of very common language in the middle of this absurd thing. Right. And playing it
5: without a, even a hair of comedic twist which is also something i love you know making i'm i'm working on this new show right now as we speak you're in mm-hmm. my office and um we're teaching all the new people coming in exactly how to do this kind of thing where we want to make sure that all the delivery and all of the execution and all the art design and mm-hmm. everything is the grounded part because the dialogue and the situations are so absurd you know
2: were you reacting against a different style? Like, I mean, like you're doing this in nineteen nineties, So it's obviously a reaction to whatever the generation where you were like, this is a style of comedy that's existing. We want to be more grounded than that. It was
5: definitely not conscious like that for yeah. us. I, for me, anyway, I know that we just love we grew up. We're, you know, th- those of us in the state are all approximately 50 years old now. Yeah. So we grew up uh, watching SNL. And and for me, a lot was SCTV. Um and Monty Python and, you know, Steve Martin, Woody Allen, those were my tent poles. And I think when we got together, when we talked about our mission statement and our what we're up going to do, which we did a lot, yeah. it was mostly about we're gonna take over the world and we're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna be like the the shit and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna dominate. The style of comedy we were trying to do almost was unspoken. It just yeah. seemed like the Amalgam of the eleven of us, and what how it came out and what we laughed at is what we did. Yeah. Um, so.
2: so, so the mailman, uh, you know, Mike references that like, hey, we know the mail hasn't come in, and the mail's like, well, the problem is it's hard to carry both. Right. These bags were not designed <laughs> to carry tacos.
5: Right. It's it's that it, it is funny because in a tiny little sketch it does touch on another element of what I f- have found funny a lot over the years is this ne- ne- notion of uh, ploddingly over-explaining exactly what's happening. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> I think it, you, you'll you use exposition, which a lot of comedy would get in the way and you'd have to do it. You're like, well, we're going to use that over-exposition, especially right. in Medical Police, where time is like hypothetically matters.
5: As a storyteller, I also very much like to err on the side of clarity. I I, I really feel like having the audience need to catch up or or be confused as to mm. what they're watching especially since most people don't pay attention yeah is really important to me anyway i think the idea of using super obvious or making a joke about exposition is an old stale joke area but then again i do like swimming around sometimes in old <laughs> stale joke areas
2: yeah or finding uh, my own little version side of, it. of it yeah um so then you know mike gets intense he's like the problem is if you don't deliver the mail, I won't be able to pay my bills, and I lose my house. And then that's when uh, Kevin is like, "Oh, your concern is about the importance of getting mail,
5: right?" So <laughs> again, that again, that that's definitely a an outgrowth of the typing thing, yeah. Where he's just like, oh, "Okay, I see what you're saying," like, <laughs> and then just repeating it again. A lot of what I like about that taco sketch is is that thing of just the weird. Flow poetry of yeah. one line to the next that has nothing to do with anything. You know? Yeah,
2: it's. I mean, it's like at its core, it's like a two people that don't understand each other yeah. sketch.
5: But it's not. But you know, the way I said that, it sounds like it's. It's. It's in, in no way like just a weird avant-garde. Yeah, thing. like it is an exact story with that that has a very specific, easy to follow. Yeah, line.
2: I think it's also partly because as we get to the next part where Kevin. The first twitch was sort of Kevin realizes he has no passion for delivering mail. And I think that's sort of why the sketch partly works is Mike has a want, which is like he's a grown up who wants his mail. And then right. you have Kevin, this sort of artist who's like, I realize I don't have a passion for it.
5: Right. And um. then he realized he he it comes. It's a it's a real coming of age for Kevin. Yeah. He really understands who what his real identity is. And that and that he I mean, it's so funny. It's like the dumbest thing, but it does have that beginning, middle and end. Where yeah. He has that his that realization that in his tart of hearts, as much as his job is deliver the mail, he really wants to deliver
2: tacos. So then you get the sort of three endings, all which could have been the ending of this sketch, arguably. So Kevin vanishes. Right. Was that in the script? Or did you yeah. find that later?
5: No. Uh, shoot. I think that it was probably in the script. It's possible we came up with it on the day. But... Um, Uh, Or even in the edit. Yeah. Well, a quarter of the jokes in my work comment in the edit room. Yeah. um, In one way or another, often. But uh, yeah, that was just an, there's so, at the end, there's so many different kind of genres of (laughs) endings
2: happening at the same time. Um, So then, well, well, it's kind of like the. uh, I just love that
5: line. I just, what do you say? I just died inside, so I don't feel like talking right now. (laughs)
2: Yeah. It's a. It is a funny. I just died inside. Yeah, he's like, I don't feel like talking right I now. I also
5: remember we couldn't say Taco Bell. We wanted to say Taco Bell, but we had to change it for legal. The irony is, we could steal any song uh, in the entire library and put it on our as a soundtrack, but we couldn't say Taco Bell.
2: Um, so you come out dress and drag. Yeah. Um, and then said, you know, the, and then he says, I don't know, sweetheart, but th- what I do know is this. That was the longest <laughs> conversation I've ever had. Uh,
5: Why do I, why am I so fond of this? Yeah. Because I don't even know why I couldn't, I, I wish I could be more incisive as to why, what that means or, you know, clearly it wasn't that long a conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I definitely know that the mailbox going away was, and I, we just decided to do that because we had a prop mailbox
2: (laughs) that we had been given by our art department to. So that was on the day where you're like, oh, that's. This mailbox isn't in the ground anyway, so we might as well walk away. Exactly. And go, goodbye mailbox. (laughs) And
5: then that, and the goodbye mailbox was a, uh, I just improvised that, um, which is just, you know, I've seen t shirts, people that, uh, tattoos that say
2: goodbye mailbox. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is beautiful. It's nice. It's like a sweet little ending to this world.
5: It is also, you know, and I think this has been true. I've noticed this over the time. Like, I've spent weeks. And many hundreds of thousands of dollars of other people's money putting together comedic sequences in big feature films and other TV shows that are long forgotten. Yeah. Um, And this little dinky thing that we probably wrote in 10 minutes and Mm -hmm. shot in 20 minutes has seemed to stand the test of time.
2: (laughs) I was thinking when we decided to talk about this, it reminded me the second episode of the show. I talked to Neil Brennan. And I assumed he was going to pick something from stand up or like a famous Chappelle show sketch, but he picked a very small, very silly moment from Half Baked. He's like, I think, and I was like, why? He's like, I think this movie is bad. But this one moment, I was like, that's the guys that wrote the Chappelle show. Mm, Interesting. And watching this, and like what I want to talk to you partly about is like, you were like, oh, that's the guy that's had the last 30 years of career. Does that like, when you see that, and did it feel like that maybe in the moment, you're like, oh, this is.
5: Yeah it did what what and watching that now today in 2020 um I love it like I've been teased by my colleagues over the years for being a big fan of my own stuff mm-hmm. but certainly when I watch back to the state I think some of it is de- definitely to my mind filler yeah or like any sketch show um and some of it just doesn't hold up in, uh, in terms of these times or where comedy's gone in t- thirty years 20 years but what but a lot of it does to me, and this is a, a, one of the better examples of I wouldn't. I have no notes on that sketch. It's, yeah. it is a to me a perfect little thing, you know. Yeah. And I also think about. I was thinking about the other one we did, two hundred forty dollars worth of pudding, um, which became one of the more famous state things with Tom Lennon and Michael Black. And similarly, that is the simplest, dumbest little mm-hmm. moment of an idea we shot it precisely as it was first pitched the first time without us changing a word. And it's just two guys saying $240 with a pudding and that's it, you know, basically. And, yeah. um, it, it's great when you stumble upon these very, very simple ideas that take no They're just so simple or, or Paul yeah. Rudd cleaning his plate in wet hot American summer is another one of those. Like, it wasn't like we
2: sat around and, and you know, worked on that. Yeah, or yeah. like storyboard. It's like, okay, first you're going to do this move, and then when you're going to... Right, none
5: of it. And, and nor 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 whether in the script or the edit or any... You know, those are all ones that just sort of were like, that's really funny. Don't... Stay, stay out of the way.
2: Yeah. When directing the state or even direct... Do you, like... Were you giving notes to performances like how what was the role of a director in a thing where you're sort of all collaborators on all parts of it? And then. Well,
5: what's funny is in those sketches, like like in Taco Man, it was literally me on the camera and then the two actors. And yeah. so and I think I was probably holding a boom mic in the, on my other hand um, and or maybe there was someone else there. But I well, don't it think must so. have been
2: when you walked out. Well, because no,
5: we cut we put it on the yeah. tripod because I was that I was also the yeah. cinematographer <laughs> and the director and a lot of my directing though in the state and I miss this and I've thought about I want to do this again and I've done this in, occasionally in other small things but is I'm holding the camera and I'm directing and so there's just no machine to, mm-hmm. to work with and uh, I, it's such a, a process always affects product and right now I'm working on this new show that's supposed to be every day mm-hmm. we have to create a new half hour show every day it's crazy but to me that'll be that that sort of non-overthought process will create a certain kind of different kind of product and so all those cheapo second unit sketches is about a third of the state have a certain quality I think that comes from you know me just running around holding the camera and
2: pointing it where I want and just saying try this try this do this So I mean, it's really interesting that like there's so much camera movement in this. Like usually you don't see sketches where because it's clearly someone holding is like this person's talking and now have to move to their point of view.
5: Well, also, yeah, I actually think I was just I was probably 22 years old or something. And I was learning how to move camera in in a dialogue scene. And I think one of my I now remember this, actually, one of the things we did in that exact sketch was me being like, how do I change the line of? Sight between the two you know the line of speaking and uh, how will the eye lines shift if i then move over here and i was <laughs> i was literally thinking about that And that's why those unnecessary camera moves yeah. happen
2: um do you remember anything about editing this or what you might have looked for um or what how it might have been different
5: no god i wish i could find the dailies i do remember that in the early seasons of the state we didn't have any sort of nonlinear system so we had to it was two VCRs mm-hmm. and, and a controller in between and you had to assemble one piece at a time on top of each other and if you wanted to go back you had to lay off the whole thing again so it was a very arduous process and um but I remember you know we did our own editing mm-hmm. in that way and uh I remember some of the other editing on the state, but I don't remember specifically that one. Like the, the another one that keeps coming up is Pants. Yeah. It's a sketch from the state, which was set to the music of um, the Breeders, the Cannonball. And I remember that one being one that I sat there and toiled for hours and hours, like at four in the morning, trying to figure out how to make it work. And then finally finding that Cannonball piece of music
2: and it all came together. When you're doing it, like it it's interesting cuz there's lots of people that at your age graduate from college with a college sketch group and then they like make sketches but they do not think it it's partly cuz it's not on tv they're not like oh this is the thing yeah they're just sort of like this is the thing that i'm doing in this part of my career and when you were guys were doing it were you like this is the thing this is
5: we were very hot on ourselves uh, at the time and i think it served us because we were young and we had no We were just young and cocky and so we walked into mtv when you know i was an intern at mtv and we walked in and we're like we'll tell you what to do and then you know in retrospect the executives at the time were in their 20s themselves and they were like okay i guess (laughs) yeah you know
2: there's so many of them they probably
5: right i've talked we intimidated people probably (laughs) and so um yeah i think we had the idea that we would be the next snl yeah and you know there were moves made after we were on mtv that were we were trying to actually do that and then It all went down in
2: flames. (laughs) We'll be back with more David Wayne after this word from our sponsors.
0: Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels. But now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in.
1: You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Uh, We are back with David Wayne. So um, I really want to talk to you about tone um, and how you create it. And I was thinking I was going to start with the section of a review you wrote for a made-up publication when you started the state as a way of promoting the state. The Manhattan Arts Review. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, which is funny because you wrote a review that I think is like a very even-handed, fair review of the state. <laughs> <laughs> Before real, you guys started, but there was a sentence I really like, which is, Uh, Much of the appeal seems to come from the combination of innocent humor and urban savvy that enables them to convey a true funny nature of life to an audience whose funny bone has been desensitized by the formulaic recycled comedy that populates cable televisions and comedy clubs across the nation, Save the Simpsons. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, so, So I want to talk to you about something that I've talked to a lot of people that are sort of your peers in terms of. I feel like
5: my whole career <laughs> yeah. evolves from my love of typing, yeah. I gotta say.
2: Go on. So, <sighs> but it's like kind of perfect. And, but it, you know, it's a question I ask a lot of people who make a similar type of comedy. That, like I've, I've asked the Lonely Island guys this, I've asked Scott Ackerman this stuff, which is there's, there's comedy that you do that you, you say, like, oh, we just had this dumb joke, not as a pejorative, or like this idea is stupid, it's sort of trying to tap into something stupid. Um, and you'll get reviews from critics who'll be like, this is stupid. <laughs> like, they don't get it. Yeah. And then there's this sort of other comedy that also gets reviewed poorly. And it's also called stupid. And, you know, I often use, like, Paul Blart as an example, even though I think there's parts of Paul Blart that are sort of yeah. well done. Um, but you know what I mean of sort of, like, there's the dumb comedy. We're doing dumb on purpose. And there's actually dumb. And there's actually dumb. And is there a distinction to you? What is it? How do you sort of, like... Yeah, I, it? how do I, you do I, it in
5: practice? I I th- I think from my taste, the distinction is laziness. Yeah, like I feel like I I never saw Paul Blart, but I know the kind of thing you're yeah, talking exactly. about. What a movie like that that I think of that, and it, sometimes I think of some of those lazy spoof movies that are yeah. out. You know, scary whatever. <laughs> um, to me, it's it truly is a laziness. It's unconsciously hacky or Mm -hmm. Um, going through the motions of what they think other people might laugh at or what are supposed to be jokes Um, whereas this is all taste I understand and totally subjective but for me a lot of stuff we would do or as you mentioned Scott Ackerman or Lonely Island is that it's it's a more um, knowing and crafted version of dumb Um, and uh, if you watch uh, MacGruber it's not they're not like let's just do whatever comes up, you <laughs> yeah. Know? And and that's that's I think the the misconception, which is a good misconception. And yeah. I and I think sometimes we had people coming and writing scripts for us on Children's Hospital, and they were so random in the wrong way, to yeah, me, yeah. You know, and they we were like they're like, what do you mean you do anything on the show? And I'm like, no, it's not really. There's actually so much thought and structure, <laughs> yeah. and so much goes into yeah. then creating the place where you can just be stupid, I guess.
2: You said something really interesting, which was it's a the idea that it's a good misconception that you like that some people don't get it. I guess it sort of like creates a paradox. Well, of, there's two parts to it. Wait, yeah. I,
5: what, yeah. The, to me, I love the. I re, I always remember one of the early reviews of the state. The state, I think, w- was that it feels easy, breezy, and breathless. Yeah. And I always remember those lines just because, uh, I don't know. People tease me, but 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 I just like the idea that it, and and in a lot of the things that we you know, wet hot American summer has this slapdash mm-hmm. thrown together like we're just doing whatever comes up next quality for some people and i like that some people feel that way even though for sure it mm-hmm. was the opposite we spent many years yeah yeah honing every word of that in our in and and then scrutinizing it every step of the way um and i like yeah so that that dichotomy i like and then but then you're also talking about critics who will say this is just stupid um i don't understand you know and and that was what a lot of the really hostile reviews of of the state wet hot american summer stella other things that came out were truly like i can't believe this even exists i don't get it like why does anyone laugh at this oh my god it's just stupid yeah um and in a way I'm like great. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. not for you, but and then other people are super obsessed with it, and that's great. Yeah,
2: yeah. it's. I, I feel like I should note, like it, those things really got very bad reviews, and I feel yeah. like it should be, like I think, a lot of people self mythologize, like oh, this thing got bad reviews, and you look back and got like pretty good reviews, and like, but like truly, like it clearly was a thing of not some. Groups of people not getting it. There's is a it? hostility
5: when yeah. you really don't get it. You're like, I'm not I'm not even sure how to criticize this because it doesn't fit into a, yeah. it's not like a bad action movie. You're like, I know what it was trying to do and it didn't do it. This is like, I'm not even sure what you're trying to do. Yeah. What I love though is like the over time there are people, uh, s- critics are starting to turn around on just at least understanding what the idea is mm-hmm. for it. And then one of the most gratifying things right now is our new show, Medical Police, is on Netflix. And a lot of the response we're seeing on social media is people who don't know any of the previous yeah. stuff basically saying, oh my God, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen and I can't stop watching it. And we see some version of that tweet over and over and over again.
2: Oh, like they've never even knew this comedy type existed. They're like, this is so dumb. But I think a lot of
5: what works about Medical Police is I'm working in partnership with John Stern and Christopher Johnson and Rob Corddry, and Krister in particular is really was pushing towards like story and Mm -hmm. making it a good action movie that you actually care about having to do nothing with the jokes. And then people are really tethered by that. And then it allows for the really stupid stuff to uh, reach, I think, a wider audience. I will say so many things I've, I've done have started off not being that Style, but then they—I just can't help but drift back yeah. into it. And I will say, there's things like we did this movie, the Ten in 2006, seven, which was didn't have anything like that to tether you. So for people like you, have to be like a hardcore graduate school fan of this stuff, or else it's like really awful. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that just came yeah. to mind.
2: <laughs> Go on. Um, you, you mentioned the the distinction between like the sort of scary movies or whatever, and and as we talk about things that the works of yours that would be broadly defined as parody, though they sort of don't follow certain rules of parody. And I noticed something as reading the annotated Wet Hot American Summer script. And there was one example that I thought was really interesting, which was during the Capture the Flag game, there's a moment where I guess you cut to people in jail and in quotes of the game Yeah. and one part, there was a bunch of kids and then a grown man making chess pieces out of stone using a rock hammer. And next to him is a poster of Rita Hayworth. It's like a la Shawshank Redemption. And you were about taking it out because that felt like on a different side of whatever line. I was wondering if you could talk out sort of that distinction. Yeah.
5: Well, as we were editing that movie, we definitely were like, that's, the, that would be in the scary movie version mm-hmm. of it. So if we're spoofing something, we're spoofing more general storytelling and genre things, mm-hmm. or we might be making a reference in a more weird, sly way to, or to something more obscure if it's a specific reference. And we've done that a lot too, um, to like random forgotten scenes in Tootsie or... Mm-hmm. or uh, a random moment in Animal House that we reference in in Wet Hot or, but um, which which moment? Well, there's a scene where Donald Sutherland uh, is living with Karen Allen, and then uh, Boone comes over and realizes that the professor is living mm-hmm. with his girlfriend, and and she, he comes out and he's like, Katie, Katie, and then he picks and then he lifts up um, something and you can see his butt. And it's just, it's a totally like connector scene in Animal House. But because the woman's name is Katie, we sort of recreated it shot for shot and her reaction, including the way she touches her forehead Mm -hmm. and, and the way she responds and everything like to the, to the millimeter for no reason. Um, Has anyone noticed it? Probably not. (laughs) I mean, it's in, it's in the deleted scenes and on the commentary of the, old old wet hot DVD, whatever, but yeah, but just to just say like, look, this is like the Shawshank Redemption and here now we've got somebody dressed up like Andy yeah. Dufresne. Um, we liked it in some way. We wrote it and shot it, but then when we looked at it, we're like, no, nah, that's not what we would do. Yeah. Um, but, you know, getting too bogged down in these are what my, what my style is. Yeah. This gets a little weird, but um, certainly in, as we've gone along and everything we've done, it's a similar criteria though, there's a certain kind of spoof that just is sort of icky to me but and it's just purely taste
2: yeah I think uh, I mean you've talked about being very involved as an editor even dating back to to the state I think editing outside of people that do it don't totally understand like beyond the basics what it can do to a scene or to tone I was wondering if you could think of sort of any examples or sort of how you have used editing specifically to
5: me I mean I've always said the I always think of it as everything up to the edit is just picking, gathering your crayons. Yeah. And then editing is creating the story from the first time uh, in many ways for me. Um, And I've learned over and over and in deeper ways through all these decades, how much, how true that really is. Mm -hmm. And I know that if you, um, especially in comedy, it's so crazy. And how you, if you add three frames, which is, you know, a, a fraction of a second uh, to a reaction shot, it can change it from not funny to funny mm-hmm. or, or the other way around. Um, or, ch- you know, lowering the volume of a voice or mm-hmm. just shifting an off camera line uh, half a second one direction or the other. It really I mean, it's it's not these aren't like minor esoteric. It's like. Truly, the difference between mm-hmm. a real laugh and nothing. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the bigger decisions of like include that scene, but take that scene out, or uh, you know, s- change the lines in this, or or cut this part in half, or forget this part of the story.
2: And can you think of a specific scene where you made a small change or or any change that sort of completely altered it? Or?
5: well, I mean, the the movie they came together is an example where the the, the entire movie we made a ninety minute movie that was okay, part of me w- realized that it if there was only a way to take out like half the movie, yeah um, and replace it and leave in the best stuff. yeah, and that's what we ended up doing. And we, and we took out half the movie and shot all that connector material of yeah. four people talking at a table um, all in eight hours and created a new movie that for me, works beginning to end. Um, and that was basically an editing thing. Um, Um,
2: I've heard you say that like meta jokes that make it clear that you're aware that this is a movie or even jokes that sort of break the reality in the style that Taco Man does throughout your career, um, allow you, allow you to better care about the stories and the characters for you to your own sensibility in so much as that by getting out the way of you being aware that it's a movie, I think it allows you to connect uh, it almost is Brechtian from what I understand about Brecht.
5: Yes. Can, can
2: that, you explain it a little bit further into how it connects to you?
5: I would say, you know, sometimes. Certainly that. as a moviegoer, um, I have had both experiences where, where, where something feels so real and caught in the moment that it, that's another way of really being brought into it. Mm-hmm. But I think some of the greatest emotional wallops for me... You know, something like Parasite, uh, one of the greatest movies I can remember uh, is to me, there's that that level, that layer of awareness mm-hmm. and artifice helps you go even deeper into it because I mean, you said it better than I yeah. could just it it take, gives you that a license to go into it because we're all we all know it's a thing. Yeah. I mean, and that's why, to me, you know, Annie Hall is so powerful and we're. He's constantly breaking the fourth wall, and that that doesn't take you away. It, t- it brings you
2: in. Yeah. Um, in in the state oral history, Michael Patrick Jan, a member of the state, described you in a way that I really liked, which was David's sense of humor is without a doubt the sense of humor of a little kid whose parents have just come home from a night out. His entire voice seems to revolve around. I I, I, I I came up with this funny thing. You want to watch it? Ah, it's really funny, and then the parents go, "Okay, David, thank you." And you want to do it again? Okay, that's David's baseline voice. Yep. And so um, <laughs> we, the the question I have is sort of we we tend to talk about truth in comedy or honesty in comedy based on how autobiographical it is or how uh, confessional it is or how vulnerable it is. But I wanted to speak about how this is truth for you to do things like this, right?
5: Uh, yeah that's I never thought of it quite exactly that way but I think that's right I mean whereas other people's way of hitting at their truth is to you know speak very delib- uh literally about what's going on in their marriage or um, what it's like to live their current life I, I feel like my way of accessing my truth is to um, hit, access the sense of humor and the Mm -hmm. the point of view that I've tried to not um completely extinguish that was there when I was 11 you know I
2: you know I've always wondered this with people who sort of do childlike comedy or interest in that what happens when they have kids yeah did it change in any way did it remind you it
5: reminds me all the time I mean my kids definitely are have similarities to me being my kids. And yeah. I have two boys, uh, nine and 13 and uh, nine, and 12. And they, um, they also think often that, uh, that I am the, they can't, they are sh- just shocked that I make my money being funny because they're like, you are the least funny person ever lived. Um, but they also laugh sometimes. And, yeah. and, but yeah, I definitely, as parenting goes, you, you, you're, taking through step-by-step step your own childhood one more time. Um, and it is fun that way to see, see those echoes. Yeah. Uh, but um, that said though, I feel like times changed a lot. And uh, my, my, the things I access from my own adolescence and preteen, mm-hmm. and ch- it's just, a, it's a whole nother world. Um, and I find that, that that in itself interesting and yeah. the things that are the same. Um, but I, I think for a lot of years, you know, wet hot and, and everything, I, my, my my reference point for everything had a certain locked in the 80s yeah. thing. And I do feel now
2: like I'm done with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we tend to talk about like, well, the sort of general conversation about when we think of like serious comedy or when comedy is important. It's that, you know, it's comedy that talks about social or political things or the sort of human condition. And as a person who sort of dedicated themselves valiantly, as I wrote, I don't remember why I capitalized valiantly so much, but uh, valiantly to this style, I want to talk to you about why it's important. And uh, I'm going to read you an excerpt from Ernest Becker's Denial of Death, talking about uh, the the psychologist Otto Ronk. He was a peer of Freud's. He worked a lot with artists. Um, as a jumping point of this conversation, we'll see how this goes. The only secure truth men have is that which they themselves create and dramatize. To live is to play at the meaning of life. The upshot of this whole tradition of thought is that it teaches us once and for all that childlike foolishness is the calling for mature men. Just this way, Ronk prescribed a cure for neuroses as the need for legitimate foolishness.
5: I Obviously, I certainly to some degree subscribe to that notion, Um I mean, it's it's a it's a charitable quote to pick. Yeah, <laughs> you could say you could probably find some other things to say that are less. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I I do think there's uh, the the court jester is important. You yeah. know, and as a consumer of um, entertainment content story, I tend to gravitate away from. Mm-hmm. Things like that, but that's probably just because I do it all day long. yeah, I think that comedy with um integrity is important and appreciated and needed uh, and and I know it really pleases me when I see that um, sometimes people come up to me and they're like i i it's been a tough year, and I just wanted to let go and laugh at something, and you boy did that work for me, you know yeah. and, and and just to see something that. And that, that that there's care I just feel like the care and, and and fun and effort that we put in translates all the way to the people who receive it in the best circumstances. And that's that's important. And I think the saddest part of our business is how many people are stuck either consciously or not making things that you can see a movie, a feature film, and there's hundreds of people that work on it. And you get a sense sometimes that there's no one involved who actually really cared about it. They're yeah. all just doing a job. And that's sad for them and for the people who have to watch it.
2: I mean, you got into the industry being able to work with your friends, like in a way that's sort oh, of yeah, like... yeah, so much luck. Yeah.
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I think having your dumb instincts validated at an early age it's hard to uh replace that for a good starting point and also to have your friends with you as we did with the state yeah all along like uh, supporting each other so that you know i don't think i ever would have gotten to that thing without that because um it's too easy to give up or have mm-hmm. doubts about your voice when there aren't 10 other people next to you being like no we're all, we're the best we're yeah. the best <laughs>
2: Um, so that sound means it's time for our final segment. It's the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. <laughs> Thank you. First laugh to that in a very long time. <laughs> <I> appreciate <it. laughs> um, Is there a, a, a joke or a sketch or a scene that you wish you could steal in a way that it's sort of an, another dimension, but everything's exactly the same except for this one joke or scene or whatever is a thing that you created um, someone compared it to the movie Yesterday, where everything. Oh, I dead. see.
5: I one the, the first thing that popped in my mind is the sex scene in MacGruber. Yeah. Um, where I'm just like, yes, perfect, <laughs> of course, of course, so stupid. Oh my god. Um, I certainly feel like there's things that I've been right next to that I've been like, wow, that is, you know, exactly wh- right. whether it's like you know other things by the. That state people have come up with, or, or uh, you know, when I watch *Burning Love*, um, mm-hmm. I was just like, Jesus, they really got that right. You know, there's a scene in *Play It Again, Sam* mm-hmm. where he's on a blind date and he's nervous and trying to impress this woman, and it, it goes wrong, and it is just perfect, and I can't, I can't ever stop watching it.
2: From interviews, it's clear that you have sort of three hobbies. Uh, magic Rubik's Cube, which was one right next to you, and drumming. I was wondering if there's a joke or scene of yours that you think this joke is like a magic trick, or the scene is like a magic trick, this joke or the scene is like a Rubik's Cube, or this is like drumming.
5: Truly, all the time, actually. Yeah. I mean, Rubik's Cube is an incredible um, hobby because it's it's a distillation of the fact of learning, of knowing that, like, something you can't do today, you could do tomorrow. Like, mm-hmm it seems literally impossible to solve. And then you're like, oh, I, now I know how to solve it. And then like within a, not that long a time, you're like, oh, I can actually solve it in 30 seconds. It's a metaphor for anything as any art form becomes. Yeah. And, and I think drumming is very similar actually where it, there's, you're like, well, I I literally can't do that. Yeah. But then you're like, oh, actually I can. And then, then there's aspects of it that become music. And yeah. it's not about like, I need to one, two, three, four, one, two, three. And it just becomes, I'm feeling it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but you were you asked them, there's if they're
2: specific, and if you don't have a specific one, we just
5: scene that feels like any of those, any of those. Um, an example that reminds me of a Rubik's cube is the missile sequence in Wet Hot American Summer. Ten years later, at the last couple episodes, where there were so many different elements and people and threads, and trying to put it all together uh, editorially felt like you've got maybe one side clean, but then the other five get messed up and then you have to keep going around and around and around until finally it all has all six sides.
2: Um, Do you have a favorite joke joke, like a street joke?
5: Oh my God, I used to have so many good ones. Let me just look up. I have a file of my favorite jokes. All right. I know one of of them is, um, well, why did Helen Keller have a bad day at the zoo? Why? Because she couldn't see or hear anything.
2: (laughs) Um... This is, You can look up more while I ask this last question. Um, do you have a a joke that you cut for a variety of reasons, either st- studio notes or time or other people, collaborators, not thinking it's funny that you... sticks? you're like, that is so funny, you're going to go to your grave being funny, even if you sort of like...
5: Wait, wait, knock,
2: knock. Who's there? Scream. Scream who? Who? <laughs> have you heard that before? I actually have not heard that one before. That's a good one. Um... Do you remember
5: the question I asked? So, I've got one more. Okay. I bought the world's worst thesaurus the other day. Not only is it terrible, it's terrible.
2: <laughs> that is really good.
5: Now, now I will listen to your question.
2: Um, do you have a, a joke from your your career that had to be cut for time or studio or collaborators, like that's not good, that you will go to your grave being like, that is funny, I don't oh, care what anyone says.
5: That's such a great one. Um, yeah the answer is yes there are many uh, it's, I don't know if it's a joke but th- I, one of my favorite things that I was saddest to see deleted in anything was there's a whole sort of thread in Wanderlust where Paul Rudd's character finds out that um, Justin Thoreau has had sex with his wife mm-hmm. in this free love community that they've moved into and um, and then it it continues in right in succession that he finds out that not only that but everyone in the house has had sex with his wife and they made us tone that down a lot and then the, it it climaxes with this incredible scene between Paul Rudd and Alan Alda and he they have this debate about politics and he's like, things stay the same and yet they don't. And then finally in the end, he, he says, you know, your wife is just taking to this free love thing more easily than you are. I mean, when I had sex with her just now, it was beautiful and she really loved it, something like that. And Paul Rudd says, you've got to be joking. And Alan Alda takes a beat and he goes, and yet I'm not joking, <laughs> that's it.
2: That's great. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's it for another episode. You can stream episodes of The State through MTV Hits or Rent or Buy It wherever you rent or buy TV series. And you can stream David Wayne's latest series, Medical Police, on Netflix. Follow David on social media at David Wayne. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Art Chung. Editorial assistance from Amanda Gordon and Emily Sen. Gautam Trigishin did our theme song. Write or view and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week. Have a good one.
1: What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prof G podcast and an entrepreneur myself.